The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode 238. One day, I shall come back. That's it. I've been renewed. As when a Time Lord's body wears out, he regenerates. I'm a time lord. I'm not a human being. I walk in eternity. Braveheart team. Change, my dear. And it seems on a moment too soon. Unlimited vice pudding. Position universe. Wearing a bit thin. Fantastic. Hello, I am Scottish. I can complain about things. Ta-da! She'll be fine. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing the 11th Doctor story, Snakes on a Plane. I'm sorry, uh, Dinosaurs on a Spaceship. And joining me today on the panel is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Do we have to do this one, Dom? I mean... Father Corey somehow got out of it. Father Corey doesn't (laughs) have to discuss Dinosaurs on a Spaceship. (laughs) <laughs> Folks, you're in for a fun one because we do not like this episode, I think. I think we're in agreement on that. But we'll we're going to talk about it. We'll we we'll, we'll, we have things we want to say. Uh so but before we get to that, remember to re- retweet the Secrets of Doctor Who and like it uh retweet it on SQPN's uh, uh, Twitter account at SQPN. Like it on the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page and share it with folks and let them enjoy our uh <laughs> Our enjoyment of this episode of the of Doctor Who. Uh, also, if you enjoy the secrets of Doctor Who, you would probably also, and you like Star Trek, you will definitely enjoy the secrets of Star Trek, which is a uh, show that uh, Jimmy, Father Corey, and I also do. And you can find that wherever you get your podcast from, or at sqpn.com slash trek. All right. This one was written by Chris Chibnall, who is the current showrunner for Doctor Who, and... Uh, uh, well, let's, before we get into that, I suppose we should do a recap, Jimmy. So let me hand it over to you and let you do the recap. Lots of stuff happens, none of which is engaging, much of which is incoherent and ridiculous, and ultimately it's just a boring and uninteresting color and sound pattern display playing on your screen for 45 minutes. <laughs> and thanks for coming, folks. We'll yeah. see you next time. <laughs> In a little more detail. So first we should say this entire episode, the premise of it, is back a number of years ago, there was a movie called Snakes on a Plane that was in production. Yeah. Yep. And as part of the marketing for that movie, they create the marketing team created a bunch of internet memes, which became really popular. They really went viral. All kinds mm-hmm. of, there were all kinds of snakes on a plane. Uh, and it was a movie about a batch of snakes getting loose on a plane. But for some reason, it caught the zeitgeist and people were really... Samuel L. Jackson helps with that. (laughs) Yeah, people were really into it. And ultimately, the marketing eclipsed the movie itself. Yeah. And apparently, the Doctor Who people were so caught up in these, they wanted to do their version. And so they did Dinosaurs on a Spaceship. To recap, the Doctor gathers a group of companions, including Amy, Rory, Rory's dad, Brian, Queen Nefertiti of Egypt, and a big game hunter named Rydell. He takes them to the 23rd century where a giant Silurian space arc is about to crash into Earth. But all the Silurians are gone, leaving their dinosaurs behind, leading to dinosaur hijinks. 
The Silurians are gone because they were ejected into space by a space pirate named Solomon. Solomon is thoroughly repulsive, obsessed with objects of value, and demands that he be given Queen Nefertiti because she is an object of value. Nefertiti, bizarrely, demands to be given to him. The 23rd century Indian Space Agency fires missiles at the Ark. To save the day, every member of the Doctor's crew gets paint-by-numbers jobs to do. Rory and, Br- and Brian fly the Silurian spaceship together. Amy and Rydell get to stun dinosaurs together. And the Doctor and Nefertiti deal with Solomon together. Ultimately, the Doctor knowingly and deliberately causes the missiles to swerve into Solomon's ship with him on board, despite the fact that Solomon was begging to be saved. So the Doctor maliciously kills Solomon, in spite of the fact he could have taken him with them and saved him. The end. <laughs> that That's a pretty accurate summary, I gotta say. That is a, that is a good recap of it, including its, its deficiencies. There were a couple of things... Oh, I haven't gotten to the deficiencies yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, there were a couple of things I liked about this, and we'll get to that. The, mm-hmm. uh, minor things. But, but uh, as I mentioned, this was written by Chris Chibnall, who is the current showrunner. I he he wrote a couple of real dogs in the in the era before he became showrunner, and I'm still wondering all, all of his all of his stuff before he was showrunner was substandard. Yeah, it, it, although apparently the critics liked this one, and there was uh, the audi- a lot of the audience liked it, and I'm not sure why, but. Oh, but there's that. So it's Chris Chibnall writes this thing, and uh, you know, for what it's worth. <sighs> well, so the audience the audience appreciation index on this was 87 out of 100. Uh-huh. And if you watch Doctor Who audience appreciation scores, they're usually in the 90s. Okay. So even this one did not please as much the the regular viewers as much as a normal one would. Okay. I I mean I. Yeah. I'm just thinking about th- this, where this fits within it. It feels a lot like the 13th Doctor stories that Chibnall writes. Well, it does. In fact, yeah. I mean, he didn't know he was going to be showrunner at the time. But if you if you look at the group he's got, number one, we have an abnormally large number of companions. So right. it's not just, you know, normally we have one or two companions. Here we have five on his own episodes it's standardly 3 at least yeah. it it has been thus far with the 13th doctor also we if you look at the representation that he's doing of different groups nefertiti is a young woman of color from another from another culture like a proto yaz mm-hmm. and rory's father brian is an older white man and is like a proto graham and right. so it, it there are even on the character levels there are some there are some similarities although i have to say nefertiti is way more assertive and interesting and self-confident than yaz the apparent patron of mental patients from what we're told about the upcoming series i mean she's already displayed a lot of vulnerability and insecurity and apparently they're going to be you know turning that up to i don't know 11 but to huh. some higher number next season Right. And, uh, I mean, I, I, I kind of like Nefertiti in this. I mean, it, there mm-hmm. was some things about her. She, there was some incomprehensible stuff. Um, I liked Brian mm-hmm. in this. Brian I, I was liked, okay. I like Rory's dad, uh, played by Mark Williams. Brian Williams was played by Mark Williams that, uh, viewers may recognize from as Arthur Weasley in the Harry Potter movies. 
and he's uh, currently playing Father Brown in the BBC adaptation of the Father Brown's uh, series by G.K. Chesterton. So, that's oh, so be... he's allowed to play someone smart instead of dazed and walking through life. <laughs> yes, he is. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So we have this. It, yeah, you're right. And this sort of this, the doctor even says at times, like he t- calls the group like a, almost like a family. I think he even like does he even say family at one point? He might not, mm, but I don't remember that. But there's references in the in the dialogue to like him just being oh joyous at having his group. This is my 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 club, my gang. Or uh, he says something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's very reminiscent of what Chibnall will eventually do with the Thirteenth Doctor. Yeah, it's also reminiscent of it in being uninteresting and unengaging. Right. Yes. Exactly. It it's not. Yeah, it's not what we've come to love about Doctor Who. I mean, the, the, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Let's move so, on from that. So, b- before we get into some particular things, I need to comment about Nefertiti. Yes. So Nefertiti. Now, bizarrely, they have when she, when when she when she's asked who she is, she doesn't start out by saying Nefertiti because she's, uh, you know a really regal character and she says i'm the lady of the two lands okay fine and then she said but and that's that's a reference to upper and lower egypt those are right. the two lands and they were united in different periods of egyptian history she nefertiti was a uh, monarch in what's called the new kingdom and well and she was the initially the wife of Amenhotep, which they refer to, they refer to her husband as the pharaoh Amenhotep, except he didn't keep that name beyond the fifth year of his reign, because after beginning with the fifth year of his reign, he started a new religion in Egypt that worshipped only a, a representation of the solar disk known as the Aten, and he changed his name to Akhenaten, which would mean the living image of the Aten. And he insisted that all of the other Egyptians go along with this new religion, and eventually he insisted that they stop worshipping their traditional gods. So he, ha- he turned Atenism into a new monotheism. And this is the thing that he is most famous for. And so today, people do not know of him as Amenhotep. They know of him as Akhenaten, and mm-hmm. and so it, it it makes no sense for the from a writing perspective to have Nefertiti referring to him for the audience as Amenhotep. If you want to, if you want the audience to understand who she is in history, now she may incidentally have briefly served as a pharaoh herself upon the death of Akhenaten before her son Tutankhamun came to the throne. Mm-hmm. That's debated. But the chronology they have here is mixed up because we're shown on screen at the beginning of the episode that the doctor is with her in the year 1334 BC. But the problem is that that's the year Akhenaten died. So there is no way he would be referred to as Amenhotep in 1334. So. As an Egyptology geek, I'm already unhappy. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna do some headcanon here. The TARDIS translation circuits translated Akhenaten to Amenhotep 
because that's what Amy. No, I don't know. It doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> it's whatever. Uh, yeah. So she's the one. Oh, also, one of the, the doctor mm-hmm. messes up history because he leaves Nefertiti in 1905 or 1902 or whatever it was with John Rydell, the big game hunter in Africa. Yeah. Yeah. And Doctor Who has kind of played fast and loose with messing up history in the past, like where we've characters get information that if they had actually known this, it would have changed yeah, history but, and that sort of stuff. But usually, usually they don't rip someone out of their own historical right. context and leave them somewhere else if they're a major world historical figure. It's not like right. the Doctor picks up Winston Churchill in 1945 and leaves him in the year 3200, yes, thus canceling all of his post-war career. Right, right. So, yeah. And then the other the other character out of time that in this is, uh, like you mentioned, Riddell, sort of a caricature of the, of the big, uh, African big game hunter, uh, so callous toward big animals and he, he's a terrible he's, person. He, he's played, well, he's not completely terrible. I mean, they do portray him as a kind of cool guy. And he's, and he's yeah. played by the same actor who plays Lestrade on, uh, on Elementary. Oh, yeah. Only he's Ch- considerably younger. Actually, isn't he in Sherlock, too? I mean, I'm or, sorry, in Sherlock, yeah. not in Elementary. Okay. Oh, okay, yeah, because that's where I remember from is, is Lestrade in, in Sherlock. Yeah, which is... Uh, yeah, yeah, the Doctor Who actor who appears, in, or related actor who appears in Elementary is Sean Pertwee, John Pertwee's son. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, well, and since Moffat is running both of these... I, this is about the time that Sherlock was out, so it's kind of fun that uh, maybe he, hey, you'd be good for this uh, for the Doctor Who thing. But of course, we know yeah. that every British actor eventually shows up in Doctor Who, so <laughs> that was the other thing. Um, we so- also have another recurring Doctor Who actor. The villain, Solomon, is David Bradley. Yes. And this is before David Bradley was cast as the first Doctor, who initially... Initially, he was cast as, as William Hartnell for the mm-hmm. 50th anniversary retelling of an of the beginnings of the show which was kind of not which was historical it was a histor it was a biopic for the show essentially right. uh called an adventure in space and time and he did so well as william hartnell that they then uh brought him back for twice upon a time as the first doctor for the 12th doctor's regeneration story and he's also been doing stuff as the first doctor for big finish oh yeah that's yeah, and the the uh, the adventure of space and time was about a year after this, so they, mm-hmm. I, I wonder if they. So if he redeemed was, himself. Redemption is real. Yeah, I wonder if the idea was if uh, already in their mind, or if this episode gave them the idea to to bring him in for that. Because yeah, I mean he, he yeah he, he's a uh, I really like him as the first Doctor. Mm-hmm. I think he does a really good job of embodying William Hartnell. Um, so we have this opening scene where. Uh, Sort of opening scene. We have the, these introduction of the various characters, and but where Amy and Rory come in, it's been what Amy says ten, ten months. months, and she feels like the Doctor is weaning them off the uh, off the traveling with him, which he denies. But right. But on the other hand, at the end of the episode, Amy and Rory ask to be let off at home for maybe a couple of months. And so right. the, and really what's happening is the showrunners are weaning the audience off Amy and Rory right. because we've had such a tight relation. I mean, we've had a more tightly related group of companions on the TARDIS for the last couple of seasons than we have ever had before. 
and with the doctor and Amy and Rory and River. I mean, we have literally a family on the TARDIS now. Right, right. Involving the doctor. And so now Stephen Moffat is starting to dismantle that. River kind of comes and goes, so he can have her or not whenever. But he needs to disentangle the doctor from Amy and Rory, and he's trying to do that rather than have them leave suddenly and unexplainedly like most companions. He's trying to build towards that, even though it will, they will be forced away from the doctor eventually. They don't choose to leave in, in the way traditional companions do. But he's, he's sort of, he's playing with, well, how would the doctor relate to a group of people like this? And by the end, he says that they've been traveling with the doctor for like 10 years on and off. Oh. And that they, or rather, I'm sorry, that they've aged 10 years in the time they've been with the doctor. So that's right. 10 years of subjective time. And, and that makes sense. If you've got a family going, you don't just ditch them. Right. So that's a reasonable thing, but he doesn't have 10 years to show us. And so, so this is part of the building towards their eventual going away three episodes from now. They basically, they cut this season in half. The first half of the season is the goodbye to Amy and Rory. The second half of the season is the introduction and initial exploration of Clara. And so we have only like three more episodes with Amy and Rory. They're forced away in the final one. And unfortunately, so we had Asylum of the Daleks to begin the season. And we're going to have Angels Take Manhattan or whatever it is where they leave. And then we have these three episodes in the middle, all of which are terrible. And so this is the first of the terrible going away. (laughs) It's the first half of this season is just crummy. Yeah. So it does not live up to what we've had before on the show. Yeah. The, these three episodes. So it's Chris Chibnall writes this one. Toby Whithouse writes the next one and he's not had a great track record. He's had some good ones, some bad ones. And then Chibnall writes power of three. Mm -hmm. Cool. Just, yeah, dogs. Uh, and then we get, well, and the second half of the season is not just the introduction of, of uh, Clara, but it's also the, the building to the goodbye of the 13th, of the, I'm sorry, the 11th Doctor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Freudian slip. Uh, but uh, so, yeah, it is interesting the way they build this season up. And it all leads, of course, also to the 50th anniversary special. Um, so one of the yeah. things I don't like about this episode is it only happens, I, there are certain types of episodes, and, and t- I don't know, TV Tropes may have a name for this, but mm-hmm. there are certain types of episodes that, o- in detective stories in particular, that only happen, the story only happens because one or more groups of people are irrationally withholding information. Yes. If, if they, uh, examples of this in Sherlock Holmes are the yellow face and the Sussex vampire. If these characters were behaving realistically the key character would have revealed the information in the first scene and the story would never have happened. Right. It's only because they irrationally hold back information that the stories occur. Well, this is something similar. This story only occurs because everyone in the story is acting ridiculously adamant and inflexible in in their positions. So the uh, Indian Space Agency in the 23rd century is acting ridiculously adamant in that when they fire the missiles on the Silurian ship because it's getting too close, 
And by the way, they say it's entering the atmosphere when it totally is not. Right. And you wouldn't wait till a Canada-sized spaceship enters your exactly. atmosphere to fire Too on late. it. Yeah. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> um, but it, they, they, they fire on the ship, and then they realize it's no longer a threat because it's moving away, and they don't call off the missiles. And that's an essential part of it. Also, Solomon acts totally adamant and irrationally in his treatment of other people. And it just every at every turn in this, someone is acting adamant and irrational. And it and, and simply to keep the story going, and I f- I find that really annoying. There's there's another element too, which is th- plot developments happen that are illogical and and unbelievable, but they only exist in order to provide a, a either a story beat or to to move the plot along. And one of the things I'm thinking about is like when when they accidentally walk up around a sleeping baby T-Rex? Like, how do you accidentally walk up to a giant lizard laying mm-hmm. on the ground like, and not see it? Like, they're literally standing over it. Like, how, how yeah. does that happen? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, also, like, they at one point beam down to the engine room of the ship, which is a giant beach because the ship works on hydropower, which is nonsense. Yes. There's no way you can power a spaceship like this with hydropower sloshing around, especially given conservation of motion and energy. Right. I mean, it's you're, over the millions of years this ship has been operated, that ocean is going to get is going to get placid, and you're not going to have any more hydro energy <laughs> if it ever generated enough energy to run your ship. Right. But they 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 beam down there, and then just so they can get menaced by pterodactyls. They can't beam out, and the doctor says it, it. It sounds like what he says is local teleports burn out or burned out on arrival. Now the problem is if if it's if it's the first that local teleports on this ship burn out on arrival, then that's a stupid because you right. need to if if you have an elevator that goes where you want, the elevator should be able to take you away. Um, but later on, they then see, we then see them teleporting away from places that they have teleported into. So clearly this doesn't burn out all of the local teleports when they beam into a place. And that would mean that it just so happened that this one teleport burned out. Yeah. For no reason that's explored. The doctor just says it. Yeah, uh, just so they yeah. can, just so they can be menaced by these pterodactyls, and it turns out that the Salarian ships must be tri- uh, piloted by two pilots. Oh, yeah. who, are in, who are genetically linked, and so we just happen to have two genetically linked people oh, with us, uh, and that makes no sense. Also, uh, first of all, how broad does it have to be? Um, <laughs> right, because I mean, I could see we uh, the first thing we need two pilots. That's dumb. Yes, you know, we, one person with a with a joystick should be enough. You right. you, you only do this. It's not like they're doing separate tasks. They're doing the same thing together. Right. right. They're they're both doing the the same thing, and that's just stupid because you can be in an emergency situation where you only have one qualified pilot available or something like that. And also, by the way, you don't need qualifications to fly this spaceship. It is it is so simple that Rory and Rory's dad can do it. <laughs> yeah. But 
you would just never do this. The only reason to do this is so we can have a yay, Rory's and Rory and his dad are bonding, doing something together moment at the climax of the episode. It is all right. artificially constructed to create that moment. There is no rational reason for any of this. Yeah. Now, even if you forgave the two pilots nonsense and said, okay, they need to be related, well, two Silurians should be enough. So yes. presumably two humans would be enough. Only that, and you, it doesn't need to be Rory and his dad. It could be Rory and Amy, or yeah. it could be Nefertiti and, and Rydell, you know, anybody but the doctor and one of the humans. But then that's still stupid. Because why, if you're a if you're a Silurian, why do you program your pilot requirements to include someone from the same species if it's not yours? I mean, <laughs> right. how about oh, we're a Silurian ship, so we want to make sure the pilot's a Silurian, not some other species that is nevertheless related to the co-pilot. Yeah, that's just it's absolutely stupid. It is terrible <laughs> artificial writing meant to create this one moment, even though it has no rational basis and flies in the face of rationality. It's it's all about emotion over character or plot. I mean, that's really what it is. It's about yeah. develop, giving the audience an emotional moment as opposed to developing the character or developing the plot or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the, uh, the other, so a couple of things that I thought were, that I want to be some positive. Mm -hmm. I like the robots that were voiced by Mitchell and Webb. That, okay, that's your that's, choice. Yeah, well, it's one of, it's one of the things. Uh -huh. Like David Mitchell and Robert Webb, like the, they're a comedy team in in Britain, and I always find them hysterical. I always find the the, the thing, their stuff funny. So uh, having them being this robot pair uh, encountering the Doctor and the others, I, I enjoyed that. I like that. So yeah, it, it was I, it was fun to notice them. They have these big mecha suit looking robots that are that are bickering and scoldy. And yeah. I've kind of seen this trope before, so I wasn't yeah. as high on them. Well, I'm I'm looking for anything, Jimmy. <laughs> it's a low bar. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, did you have anything that uh, that stood out as okay? Um, the CGI was okay. <laughs> the dinosaurs were all right. Yeah. yeah. Um, how the dinosaurs were treated was not great. I mean, as in, I'm I'm not concerned about dinosaur cruelty, <laughs> right? How they were, how they functioned in the story was not so great. It, it, I haven't even begun to think about the dynamics of the dinosaur ecosystem on this ship, but <laughs> it doesn't doesn't at first glance. I mean, how is that Triceratops getting its it the plants it eats, right? enough to fill it and and we've got a disproportionate number of carnivores to to herbivores on this ship you need for every for every small group of carnivores you need a much larger group of herbivores also the doctor is way too trusting of the triceratops even though triceratops is my favorite dinosaur as a child mm -hmm. i love triceratopses but don't assume that because it's an herbivore, it's not dangerous. Look yeah. at its head. There's a reason it has those horns, and it uses them. It is evolved to use them. You, you know what else is an herbivore? 
a bull. Yeah. <laughs> Go ask bullfighters about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wild animals are still wild. So one thing I, I I did a little bit like, I guess, the some of the chemistry between Nefertiti and Rydell, because mm-hmm. they're, they're setting them up to be a romantic pair. In fact, one of the things they're doing here is they're furthering the Amy has learned to function as the doctor theme. So for a good chunk of the episode, they're split into two groups. Uh, The doctor Mm -hmm. has Rory and his dad, and then Amy has Nefertiti and Rydell. And Amy just naturally steps forward and starts leading, even though we've got a queen and a macho big game hunter here. Amy is still the one to step forward. And she, they, they make, they make a point of what she's learned to do in situations like this as a longtime companion of the doctor. And at one point, uh, Nefertiti and Rydell are fight flirting with each other. And Amy even says, I will not have my companions flirting. And, and so this is very much like what will happen with Clara. It's an idea that is obviously in Stephen Moffat's mind, what happens when you have a long-term companion that starts to function like the doctor in the show. And so Mm. here we have kind of a little pilot of that concept with Nefertiti and uh, Rydell functioning as Amy's companions with Amy taking the place of the doctor. Right. And that's kind of interesting. I I like that. I, I really don't like the the role of Solomon in all this. Solomon is ridiculously adamant and irrational. Yes. Evil Uh, for no reason. He's evil (laughs) for no reason. He is, he is, he he is designed to be thoroughly unlikable. And the doctor early on, it underscores this by when, when the, when Solomon makes some comment about the doctor, the doctor says, don't ever judge me by your standards. Yeah, and that's a sign of how adamant the doctor is in his opposition to Solomon, and it's meant to signal the audience that the doctor and Solomon are simply black and white when it comes to moral standards, with the doctor being white and Solomon being black, and the that, but then the doctor kills him. Right. And it's like uh, the doctor not just kills him out of necessity. The doctor maliciously kills him when he does not need to. This is this is not a fifth doctor firing a gun into the chest of a cyberman out of desperation killing. This right. is the doctor having a begging man in front of him saying, "Take me with you. Don't leave me to die on this ship." And the doctor turning his back on him and pressing a close the door button to seal the man behind it so he can't follow them, and then leaving him to die from a trap the doctor has set up himself. This is a cold, premeditated murder. And it's like, I'm sorry, doctor, you are operating on this man's level at this moment. You are not the hero. You are a murderer in this moment, and this is presented as light family entertainment. I think we're supposed to be, like, because Solomon's a mass murderer. He killed all the Silurians. And so we're supposed to see this as justice, but that's not how justice works. No. (laughs) That's not how it works. Especially not on this show. That's vengeance. Yeah. Now, if this were 
if the doctor were a different person and this were a different show and it was set up so that, you know, Solomon would never face justice if the doctor didn't do this or if someone didn't do this to him, well, I could see this as an act of vigilante justice. But that is not what this show has set up, and that has that is out of character for the doctor. The right. doctor the doctor is too much of a if not a pure pacifist, he's too he certainly spouts pacifist ideology enough. I mean, even in this epi- episode, we have Amy going, no weapons, until it turns out they, the, they have stun guns to use on the dinosaurs. Yeah. So he has this longstanding anti-weapon ideology, and, th- and, and this is just simply out of character for the Doctor. Yeah. We've seen it a few times that there's a little bit of hypocrisy in that anti-weapon ideology because the doctor. Oh, there's a lot of anti- there's yeah, he, a lot of hypocrisy in it. He often has no problem. He won't use the gun himself, but he'll let somebody else's weapon do the dirty deed. Which in this case, the 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 missiles from the Indian Space Agency. You know, it just yeah, doctor. That's still essentially pulling the trigger. You you know you can you can uh, wave it off all you want. You're still responsible for that weapon killing that guy when you could have prevented it. Yeah. So, yeah, well, I agree. I, especially I don't like when you've set the trap yourself. Yes. Right. He put he put Solomon in the box. And yeah. 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 So that yeah, that wasn't good. Let's see. One thing that is happening in this episode at least three times that I caught is some bodily humor. Yeah. That is is fairly light. I mean, at least they're not doing flat out fart jokes. But right. they're doing things that are pretty close. At at one point, a, the Triceratops is sniffing at uh, Brian's pants. And the doctor, noting that it's an herbivore, says, do you have any vegetable matter in your pants? And And Brian's father says, just my balls. And he's got golf balls in there that have the smell of grass on them, apparently. Right. Which but, is, you know. li- like, really... Really, a triceratops, a, a, a triceratops is going to smell the grass on your golf balls, right? You know that's just, again, that's unbelievable. Set up, it's artificial, it's just set up for a just yeah, to get that joke. line. Yeah. Also, later when the comedic robots are are squabbling with Rory, one of them makes a comment about, "Ooh, I'm afraid," and then he says, "Like, oh, maybe I am. I just, I just leaked a little oil, right?" And then uh, at one point. Rydell is talking to Queen Nefertiti about they had they made women fire brands in your day or something, but you just need a man who's sufficient who's got a sufficiently large weapon and he holds up a big stun gun rifle thing for the dinosaurs. And right. so we've got this bodily humor going on here that isn't particularly funny. Um, in a better episode, it would be they would be somewhat unremarkable. I wouldn't even necessarily mention, but that's the thing is, is the episode in general is so bad that it just adds to the weight of the of the bad yeah. of this story. Also, there there are various intertextuality things in this when when the doctor ridiculously easily deactivates the robots, they start singing Daisy, right? You know, which is a, a reference to two thousand and one. Yeah. Uh, ju- uh, yeah, just just lots of unpleasant stuff in this episode. Yeah. All right, I think <laughs> I think we've uh, dunked on dinosaurs in a spaceship enough for one time. I and uh, we can we can 
put this one in the to bed and never but, talk about but it. Again. There are worse <laughs> horrors yet to come. Oh, next week, a yes. town called No Mercy. <laughs> yes, well, two weeks we get, we get a break in between, but yes, yeah. the town. Oh, so the the doctor in a western, oh, like doctor in a western, could be so good. Oh, the, it has been good. D- yeah. The first doctor story, the gunfighters, that was fine. Well, that was a lot of fun. I haven't seen that one yet. Okay, so yeah, that, I, I get that to look forward to. Yeah, the doctor <laughs> with uh, Stephen and uh, Dodo, I think, in um, in Tombstone, Arizona, for the gunfight at the OK Corral. It's wow. played and it's played for comedy, and it works. Uh, oh well, well, we'll have to show some, some mercy. <laughs> let's <laughs> let's wrap it up before I get into some bad puns. We do want to end by taking a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including. Sarah S., Patrick M., Don B., Jonathan S., and John E. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue The Secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And we'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us every week. So that's it from us. What do you think of snakes on a plane, uh, dinosaurs on a spaceship? <laughs> Maybe you have a better opinion of it than we do, or you found something better to the, that we haven't, let us know by commenting at sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page, or send us an email to Who at sqpn.com. We'll be back next week when we'll be discussing the sixth Doctor story, Mind Warp. Until then, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for joining me and sharing the Secrets uh, of Doctor Who. Perry should be afraid. Very afraid. <laughs> And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And I have no quote to add here because it was so bad. <laughs> Thanks, folks. Right. This is going to be fun.